So in this first part of Ordinary Time, we've taken a number of weeks here that was uh, meant to be a sabbatical that got postponed to next summer, and I just want to say how grateful I am for everybody who has uh, taught this summer. It's been refreshing for me to sit and listen to people who I enjoy listening to, so it's been fantastic. And as I've thought about the contribution that I wanted to make this summer when it was my turn, and we have one more week next week, who I forget who's... Dennis, Doc Ock will be up, and then we'll uh, turn our attention. Uh, I'll be back sort of in my normal spot the first part of, of uh, September, I mean, and we'll turn our attention to um, studies in 1 Corinthians and spending the last part of ordinary time thinking about what I'm calling the ordinary church. So that's where we're heading. And so, as I said, I've, I've kind of wanted to make a contribution this summer uh, in the area of um, apologetics, you might say, and think about ordinary apologetics and letting our light shine in a particular way, and that is through gentleness. I've been thinking a great deal lately, and, and I, would, I would like to think more. I mean, I could be a professional student. There's a part of me that wants to go get a PhD. My wife would kill me, but you know what I mean. Um, I'm just fascinated, uh, massively curious about and motivated towards the increasingly difficult and even harsh conversation that exists between the church world in the unchurched world. And I lose track of time, but a couple, uh, maybe six months or a year ago, uh, a book came out called uh, The Allure of Gentleness, which was a series of writings and um, messages that Dallas Willard had given and that his daughter Becky had compiled and put into this book on apologetics. So it, it's, it has some standard apologetic fare in it. In fact, most of it is. But it's all seen through the lens of what Dallas wants to argue for is this allure of gentleness in this otherwise harsh culture. And what Dallas means to say, his fundamental argument, is that the means of our communication needs to be gentle. Why? Because gentleness is part and parcel of the person we're wanting to argue for. And so that the mode of our speaking about evangelism or apologetics needs to have the same sort of characteristics that Jesus himself had as gentle. And the second thing that stimulated me about this is a number of weeks ago when Todd Pickett was speaking, he referenced this uh, Russian monk. And I went and did some reading about him, but I, I only have time to say this, that you know, this monk was famous for saying, acquire a peaceful spirit. And around you, thousands will be saved. And I just want to sort of place before your minds this morning a proposition. And the proposition is this, is that this has always been the case. With Jesus, if the Apostle John was noted for anything, it was for his loving gentleness. The Apostle Paul, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, or a lady who I dearly love, Baroness Caroline Cox. You may not be aware of who she is. She's still alive. And the, the short story is she inherited a bunch of stuff, including a seat in the House of Lords. And with a gentle winsome now, now for a whole generation, a number of decades, she has pleaded with gentleness before the House of Lords for humanitarian aid and peace. Unfortunately, there's a giant contrast, though, with what I've just articulated in our current reality. I know very few people read Time magazine anymore, and probably almost no one gets it in a paper edition. 
But you may have seen somehow that the current cover of Time Magazine, this week's cover, is this. It's the whole cover has these words on it. Why we're losing the internet to the culture of hate. And it goes on to talk about, you know, trolling, you know, threatening people and harassing and spewing hate, um, giving examples like, did you know there's almost like a whole cottage industry now that when a loved one dies and they put up a Facebook page, like let's say you have a loved one who was active on Facebook, and when they die, you, I guess what they do now, you, you turn it into or you put up a memorial page. You can't even read the comments on them anymore. Because whether it's just a regular person and a famous person, they are full of vitriolic hate for a dead person. And this is not like an an occasional odd thing. It happens all the time. One famous person, I won't name their name, has left Twitter and social media altogether after receiving a rape threat against this person's daughter who was five. She might be sitting there thinking, or maybe as you've thought about these kind of topics yourself, you might think, well, what about just kind of bold and authentic free speech? Like, don't we, you know, shouldn't the web and and social media and any kind of our communication, shouldn't that be wrapped up in this very American idea of bold and authentic free speech? And the answer to that is, of course, absolutely. Be as bold and be as authentic as you can possibly be. But catch this from a good heart. Yeah, then be as bold, as authentic as you can possibly be. But from a heart that radiates these God colors that we just heard Dennis read, helping people to taste godliness, going public, yes, but with gentleness and respect, as Peter says. So using the Time article as just one example, let's ask the question, why is there so little gentleness in most human conversation. And I want to say that gentleness is not intuitive when one's truest desires are to win or to position. Do you know that marketing term? To position yourself, to be seen by others in a particular way, or to get attention or clicks. When that is someone's prime highest desire, then gentleness is probably not going to be in play. But this is just not a web phenomenon. I mean, imagine a supervisor at work who has employees who want him to go to this meeting and argue for certain things, or the dean of a a school at a college or something, and there's a budget meeting that's about to happen, right? Nothing better to bring out the worst of us than budget meetings, right? So, or you might, you know, think of a politician or a spouse who's desperate not to get caught And when those are the truest desperate desires, well then of course gentleness is not intuitive. Winning is. Because after all, if I go back and say to my faculty that I wimped out in that dean's meeting, then I'm not gonna be positioned very well with my faculty. Or if I go back to my employees on the shop floor and tell them that I wasn't able to push through those changes, then I'm gonna be accused of not being bold and authentic. They even might say they don't trust me anymore. So then all that builds up to an intuitive rationalization that says do anything you have to say, do anything you have to do to win because I must position myself before my faculty or before my subordinates in a certain way. 
And without that, I am not a person. It's not the kind of selfhood that I want to cultivate. So if you were to ask me, hey, Todd, you've thought about this for a long time. What, what do you think is going on here? And I want to say that right now we live in a space and time, a cultural space and time, in which we feel it's necessary to create a self. And so what happens is people want what they want in order to create this self, then they don't get it, then they become angry, and then they become full of bitter contempt. And when that's the heart of a human soul, look at me, when that's the heart of a human soul, there is no virtue in free speech. There is no virtue in being authentic and bold. Virtue is a matter of the heart, not a social construct that was put into being for a great reason and we ought to have it. I am not in the slightest bit um, wondering about free speech. I'm wondering about the content of free speech, not the fact of it. Those are very different things. And so I want to suggest that the only people who consistently be gentle are those who are already rich in a certain kind of self. They already possess a certain personhood. And I want to say it's a self that is born again into the kingdom of God. Not I raised my hand at a crusade. I did. Debbie did. We went forward. We did the drill. I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying that's not what's in view in this text. What's in view in this text is that someone is deriving their life from the riches, richness and goodness of God. And having derived their life from God's kingdom and living their life within it, they no longer have to resort to what other people have to resort to to win or to position themselves or to create a self. Because as I derive my life from the kingdom of God, that is myself. And I don't have to position myself. I am positioned in the kingdom of God. And I don't have to win because Jesus already said, it is finished. It's won. I don't have to win. I can be a big loser. And it's okay because I possess a self. I don't possess a self that's determined by whether you see this or how do you make a W or this. So a self that's born again into the kingdom of God. I mean, look, these are the words of Jesus that without that, without being born again into the kingdom, Jesus said, you can't even see that reality. Remember? He said, you can't even see it, much less taste it or touch it or have a self created by it. But those who are living their life from and relying on the riches of God's kingdom, they have the potential to be gentle. So thinking about this now and its impact on apologetics and evangelism, I want to say that this social reality is actually an opportunity for apologetics. Apologetics being basically meaning the defense of something. Or you might, putting it more positively, you might think of like creating plausibility structures in which things that people wonder about, they can sort of begin to get over those things that they wonder about. And think of evangelism as more as the sort of the positive proclamation of the gospel and then asking people to follow Jesus. And I, again, I want to just suggest before you this morning that gentleness and this salt tastiness and radiating these God colors is the key to both apologetics and evangelism today. Why? Because I think this sort of gentleness allows us to embody 
most of what is counter to the common charges today, now I don't have time to get into this, but if you just go Google and read about what the outside of the church people think of the church, you will find that gentleness and respect, as Peter commended, would undo about 90% of it. It's not going to undo the content-driven stuff. But most of, the, most of the reaction to Christianity today is not content-driven. You might think so because of all the haranguing about gay marriage or that sort of thing, but at the end of the day, that's not it. At the end of the day, it's much bigger plausibility issues, of which those things are just sort of the current cultural example. But there have been current cultural examples for 2,000 years. So gentleness. In the negative, gentleness means not severe, not rough, not violent. Positively, the Greek dictionaries would tell us that it's a willingness to give way. It's a quiet, mild, friendly spirit. But having said that, I think it's important to say that gentleness is not a passive submission. It's an active attitude like agape love or others-oriented love or willing the good of another. Gentleness is like that. It's an active attitude. And I know as soon as we start talking about this, especially in our culture, it can sound weak. And I get that. But fortunately, the best example of this trait, the best example of gentleness is actually God himself in his constant forgiveness of you. Just think of your everyday sins and the absolute absence of God acting towards you in any way that mimics what we justify in our current political and cultural conversation. It's completely gone. So you don't ever have to worry about being a wimp here because when you're mimicking a trait of God, when you're actually mimicking something that you can go read in any systematic theology is, a, is an attribute of God himself, you're not dealing with weakness, you're dealing with the greatest strength there is. You know, because of his own words about himself, gentleness actually became a classic way of describing Jesus. Because nobody had ever known anybody to simultaneously, look at me, to simultaneously claim power and gentleness. You might have had a, a rabbi here or there or a political figure who was gentle, but they would have had no claim to power. Or conversely, you would have a lot of people who had claims to power, but would have never in a million years, you know, can you see Napoleon being gentle? People who have great claims to world power never associate it with gentleness. But Jesus did. He said stunning things like, just listen to this sentence, your king, did you catch that? Comes, remember, gentle. Riding on a donkey. And that's meant to produce, you've got to be kidding. But in the manner of Jesus, gentleness became a basic Christian virtue. Not, do I have all of your attention? Not a temperament. This is not about, oh, well, so-and-so, you know, she's just naturally gentle. This is not about temperament. This is not about going and taking a personality inventory. This is a classic Christian virtue. Paul, who was in a, we could say just for the sake of discussion, sort of a heated um, exchange of letters with the church in Corinth, said to them, I come, in, I come in love 
and with a gentle spirit. He said, I come by meekness and in the gentleness of Christ. To the Philippians, he said, let your gentleness be evident to all. Galatians, he talks about gentleness as a fruit of the spirit. Colossians and Ephesians, he encourages the church to put on gentleness. I mean, we could go on and on. So then this is the backdrop when we come to our gospel reading. The backdrop here is Jesus is functioning like a prophet. I'm not saying he was merely a prophet. I'm saying in this instance, he is functioning very much like a prophet. You might say a prophet slash teacher. And he's trying to awaken Israel to the fact that you're not doing this. I mean, we could paraphrase even further than Eugene said by saying something like, my chosen salt has lost its saltiness. Did you get that? My chosen salt has lost its saltiness. And then we could say, those I elected to be my light, instead of being a beacon of light to the world, have turned to the darkness of power politics and sectarian animosity and militant revolutions. And that was the absolute truth. Jesus was looking at groups of Jewish leaders who had given themselves to power politics, no different than ours today or who had given themselves to sectarian animosity, no different than what you see today between, let's say, Paul Ryan and Donald Trump. Sectarian animosity and to militant revolutions. And he says to them, you're missing it. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. Now, saltiness, like gentleness, has a very specific taste and character. And essentially what Jesus is saying to them is that for this Jesus, God, kingdom revolution to happen, he, putting it positively, he's simply saying it's going to be very important that, as, that you keep your kingdom virtue, that you keep your kingdom integrity, and that you can keep your kingdom goodness, saltiness. Or you're here to be light, bringing out the God colors of this world. Light here meaning something like it's going to be very important that you keep your purity and that your life kind of radiates knowledge and truth and, your, and that you embody, how you live embodies a witness to this purity, knowledge, and truth. Now, this, we have a very similar thing with the backdrop of 1 Peter 3. Here you have Christians living in a hostile setting, suffering lots of cultural abuse and full-on persecution, as Christians do around the world today. They're being ridiculed and rejected for believing in and following Jesus. Now, I, don't, I can't historically read into all that they were thinking or feeling, but maybe something like this. Remember the big harumph in the Christian community? It feels like a number of years now when that airline attendant was told she couldn't wear a cross to work. And I get there are genuine free speech issues there, but I'm just, I just want you to remember the emotional feeling many people in the church had. Or think of the last decade of arguing over not whether you can say Merry Christmas. Or maybe most importantly, well, you know, Christianity is just one religion among many. And you can't talk about metaphysics or spiritual things in the public anymore because they have no right to the conversation. And so, you know, Christianity is just sort of one spiritual view amongst many, and so it doesn't belong in the, in the public sphere. You can't actually talk about it. And how do we feel? Rejected, pushed out, marginalized. Who stole my country? How did this happen? And we're going to respond. We are responding. And Jesus and John and Paul and Nelson and, and um, Beryline Cox, they all want to say there is a way of responding that bears fruit that harsh, 
winning and positioning never can. But Peter says, yes, always be prepared to give an answer, but with gentleness and respect. Or as the proverb says, a gentle response diffuses anger. Or a couple of sentences here from Willard's The Allure of Gentleness. Dallas writes, How will we get a hearing by merely insisting that we have the truth and reason on our side? Our apologetic happens in a context, an age shaped by feuding intellectual commitments and cultural battles over religion, science, truth, and morality. This context is strewn with enmity, hostility, abuse, and other opposition, which ultimately contradict the very things our message lifts up. This is why our apologetic has to embody the message and person we want to communicate, so that it is only with gentleness and reverence that people will see and begin to verify, that is to say, create plausibility structures in their minds that maybe there is something to this because you have to believe me, the liberal, um, and I don't mean political, li politically liberalism, I don't mean modern political liberalism, the liberal project as a rejection of God is going to run its course. It may not run its course in our lifetime, but it is going to run its course. And when it runs its course, and when people see that there's a bankruptcy in owning things and sleeping with whoever and whatever you want, when people see that there's an ultimate bankruptcy in that, there will somewhere, I hope on this earth, be little groups of people of salt and light to whom people who are desperately hungry and thirsty can turn and say in these dopey little groups, there is life. Humanity is God intended. We pursued our own project, and it didn't pay off in body, soul, or spirit. But there are these gentle, little, humble groups of people who love God and love each other and serve each other and serve the earth. And I believe that humanity at some point will turn and go, we've had it wrong. If nothing else, you just think eschatologically, think of the end, and God's kingdom is going to come. So my proposal to us is that we seek gentleness as an instinctual habit so that we don't revert when somebody flames us on social media. You know, you know that sense of like reverting to default positions? Like I'm in rental cars a lot. You know how you get in rental cars and you think, well, this is the wipers or this is the, you know what I mean? This is the lights, you know what I mean? You're, you have this default position about your own car. Or should you ever have the rare privilege of driving a Porsche? Just beware, the key's always on the left in a Porsche. It's not on the right. <laughs> so the, the image here is that we seek this as a aspect of our personhood. And so if you ask, well, Todd, how do I do that? I want to say you do it indirectly. That you nurture in yourself trust in God. And that gentleness is something that's actually just aglow with God's confidence in his completely competent love. So I'm just saying in different words, deriving your life from and living in God's kingdom is what allows you to be safe. So here's something to think about for an hour or a day or a month. What if the biggest problem facing the church today is not the doubt about God in the world, but our own doubt? What if I can't actually trust God? What if I do need to win in this meeting? What if it's our own doubt? God's not nervous about the outcome of the world. 
And therefore, we can stand confident, non-nervous, gentle, and kind people. One more thought from Willard. This is a visionary sort of thought. Standing in this confidence, the best way to make our apologetics and evangelism more effective is to combine, excuse me, to combine them with a gentle spirit of helpfulness and a kind presentation. Being simple and humble and thoughtful as we listen to others and help them come to faith. So I know I've said a lot in the last 20 or 25 minutes. So an invitation for you here. Capture, if you can, the one thing that you feel not Todd saying to you. But see if you can capture here, close your eyes, still yourself. See if you can capture one idea from the scriptures, one idea from the Spirit um, that you hear the Spirit saying to you. And sit with that just for a moment, listening to whatever the Spirit might have to say.